our volunteers are. And you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. We are continuing in our study of the book of Hebrews, but we're taking a little side journey through Genesis 15 as we're going to start studying in Hebrews much about Abraham and his life and what that means for us and tells us about God. And so we're going to take a look at just one section of that life here, that story here in Genesis 15. And just a word of warning, he has not yet received the name Abraham in this passage, and I'm going to try to refer to him as Abram, but I'm going to go back and forth as I'm preaching, so bear with me. Genesis chapter 15, you're going to be reading the whole passage, whole chapter. This is God's word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back from here in the fourth generation from the iniquity of the Amorites. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. We believe in your inspiration, your breathing out of your word for our benefit. 
And we believe in your Holy Spirit at work, ministering among us and dwelling within us. And we depend on both your word and your spirit. Pray that they would cooperate this morning, that we might know you are faithful, know you are true, and trust in you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what in this life is really trustworthy and dependable? If you've owned a car for any amount of time, you know it's not cars. Maybe you even have a trusty tool that eventually breaks down and doesn't work. It's not government. Governments fail us all the time. It's not people. No matter how much you love and care for people, there's going to come a time when they break your trust or you cannot count in them. There's not much that is truly trustworthy and dependable. In this passage today, God is trying to tell us that he is the exception to that rule, that he is faithful and true and dependable in all that he does and promises. See, this comes on the heels of a battle that Abram had waged, a little mini war, that he was victorious, but kind of shook him up a little bit. And he comes to this place that, that God has brought him through, and he, he needs a little bit of a reassurance about these things that God has promised him, this, this offspring and the land. And God gives him that reassurance here in this passage. And in so doing, he, he teaches us that our God is trustworthy and faithful. And because of that, we can believe him and his promises. Because our God is trustworthy and faithful, we can believe him and his promises. And so we're going to look at three ways this morning that our God is faithful. The first of which is that God is faithful in his promises. This chapter begins with this phrase, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And this is a phrase that's often used in the Old Testament to talk about a prophet. Right at the beginning of several Old Testament prophecy books is this phrase, the word of the Lord came in a vision. And what this is trying to communicate to us is that this passage is telling us something about God. This passage is telling us, revealing something about him and his work. And it comes, as I said, on the heels of, of Abram already walking with God and trusting in God and trusting in his plan, but not quite seeing what had come to fruition, or what he thought should have come to fruition. And so God begins, fear not, Abram, fear not. Abram had plenty of things to fear. They won the battle, but it's not like they couldn't be attacked again. He's, he, you can see here in, in what he says, he's worried about the future, my, my offspring. I don't, I don't see how I can possess this land. And so God encourages him, fear not. Why? The essence here is not fear not, oh, and here's two random facts. It's fear not because I am your shield and because your reward shall be very great. And it's interesting, you don't need a shield if there's no threat, God's not promising freedom from danger, freedom from things that could harm Abram, but he's promising to protect him in light of them. 
And he says, your reward shall be very great. After this, this victory, he could have taken a lot of spoils. And indeed, some people did. But God is saying, whatever reward you could achieve on your own, the reward that I'm providing for you is going to be much more immense. And so you can see, even as God is, is promising these things, he's trying to encourage Abram. And these aren't the only promises that he makes. He promises to be a shield and, and that Abram will be rewarded in a very great way. He promises that he will have offspring, and not just an offspring, a son who can be an heir. Indeed, he, he promises that that's not going to be the end of his offspring, that his offspring are going to be very great, like the stars. He promises that Abram will possess, possess the land. He promises that Abram's descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. But he also promises that they will leave, that they will experience this exodus from Egypt, and that Egypt shall be judged. He promises that Abram will die peacefully at a good old age. And he promises that, yes, indeed, the Israelites will possess this land. And there's a couple things to note about these promises. The first of which, the, the two big promises of the offspring and the land, God begins with this I am statement. He's grounding all the promises in who he is and what he has done. He's not asking Abram to just believe, hey, anyone said this. He said, I am the one who is making these promises. And, and he makes them in a, in a progressive way. In, in Hebrews 6, which we're going to see next week, it says God made a promise to Abraham, which is, is true. But you could also say God made promises to Abram because it happened in Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 22, which we're like, okay, yeah, that's, those are pretty close together. That's a couple decades over which God made these expounding and expanding and, and great, more deepening promises. And we see this land promise here. And if you're familiar at all with your geography, you're, you're reading this, you're like, all the way from Egypt to the Euphrates, my, my Israelite history isn't that good, but I don't think they were ever that large of a nation. And you'd be right, even at the height when Solomon or when David were king, when they were conquering and they were ruling over vast loss of land, the nation of Israel never reached that breadth. Did God's promise fail then? Or was this promise about something greater and more profound and deeper? As we read in Hebrews, a better country that is a heavenly one. That God's promise is expansive to try to push Abram to wonder and to glory and how deep and how amazing and how glorious his promises might be. It's kind of like when we tell kids, you can be whatever you want when you grow up. Except I personally known someone who wanted to be a mailbox when he grew up. That's, that's, that's not really going to happen. When we tell kids you can be whatever you want, we're trying to point to them that the, that the world is full of opportunities and there's a profound reality inside of that, that they can do great and amazing things. And so God is saying, I'm promising you all this land, but what I'm promising you is actually something greater and deeper. And notice in this promise, 
the timetable. He's promising to Abram near the end of his life, at almost 100 years old. And he says, and, and there's still hundreds of years to go. 400 years, the fourth generation. Your people, your descendants will endure suffering and affliction and slavery. Often that is the case for the people of God. I think too often patience, not with little annoyances day to day, but patience across our lives is one of the most neglected Christian virtues. God calls his people to be patient because his timing is true. As Peter says in his second letter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient. God even gives the reason here. He says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's judgment always comes when it should, including his judgment of his people when they're exiled to Babylon, including the judgment that will come when Jesus Christ returns. It's going to come at exactly the right time. We can be frustrated sometimes that things are not happening on our timetable, that things are not happening in in the pace that we think is reasonable, and we forget that God is good and powerful and wise, and all things are happening in the time that he knows is best. Our God is faithful in his promises, and if that's true, that we should meditate on them. We should reflect on them. God is inviting us to know his promises, not just these promises to Abram, but the promises he makes throughout his word to his people to consider and ponder and to think about what that says about him and what that says about how we can live in light of that. Our God is faithful in promises, but he is also faithful in the midst of our questions. As I've said already, Abram has already trusted God a great deal through, through difficult and trying circumstances, a lot of uncertainty. He left the home he had always known to a place he had never to go to a place he had never seen. Abram has already trusted God. And so when he comes with questions, sometimes we can think he's being a little impertinent, but Abram has trusted God. And so he's coming to God with questions, not, not just doubts. I don't think that makes sense, but, but questions to God. It's almost a complaint. We don't like that word because we think of complaining like something our kids do or people do about what, what the line they had, to pass, they had to sit in or someone who passed them on the road, that kind of complaining. But a complaint is just looking at what reality should be, looking at what reality is, and, and noting the difference between the two. See, often our complaints are based on what we think reality should be, what our expectations are, what, what we determine to make sense, and the difference between that and reality. But a complaint like Abram is making is, is looking at what God has said. He's looking at God's prior promises, at what God has already revealed to him, and he's saying, I'm, I'm looking around, God, and I'm just wondering when is this going to happen? How can I know? It's, it's not like if I said to Elizabeth, you know, 
you still haven't gotten my face tattooed on your body. That's an unreasonable expectation that she never made a promise for. I have created that out of thin air. Do you even love me? That's not what Abram is doing here. He's saying, God, you promised me these things. And I'm looking and I don't see those promises fulfilled yet. It's, it's a kind of lament, a cry out for, for justice to be done. The things that you have said, God, I don't see them. Please help me to understand. And he was right to question. In this day and age, childlessness was often considered to be a, a judgment from God. or Whatever God you worshipped, if you were childless, you were considered to be punished. And so Abram's question, while it seems inappropriate to us, was justified. But notice that in the midst of the questions, God is not afraid. He's not afraid to be questioned. He's not afraid to be questioned about both promises that he makes. Abram, Abram asks him both, what will you give me? And how am I to know? After, immediately after, he makes these promises. But Abram himself also is not afraid to question God. But notice that he questions God directly. He doesn't turn to those around and say, what is God doing? He doesn't ponder in his heart and just say, God, Abram, I don't understand what God is doing. He goes to God because he understands that it is God's words that he needs to trust in. And notice how he he, uh, talks to him. He begins each question with, oh, Lord God. And if you can excuse me for a minute, this is where I think some of our, our modern translations don't get it. Because that word Lord, it's capitalized in your Bible, and we're like, yeah, that means Yahweh. That's the, the personal name of God. But he is saying, sovereign Yahweh, Lord Yahweh. He's very personal, but also very humbly coming to God. And this, this phrase is, is not used very often in the Old Testament. It's almost always used in this, this humble pleading to understand. He demonstrates his great respect, even in the midst of bringing a hard question to God. See, sometimes we come to God with some notes. Hey, God, I've got a question, and here's what I'm really looking for. Here's the answer that I'm hoping for that I really, if you know what you're talking about, would give me. That's not how Abram does it. He comes to God and asks him, how am I to know? What what will you give me? You've promised to give me a son, an offspring. What will you give me? And then there's this phrase in verse 4. It says, and behold. We kind of gloss over that one. This is supposed to to, to highlight your your, your attention and say, hey, behold. Pay attention to what God does, he responds. And he responds in a loving, immediate, honest, compassionate way. Psalm 4 says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. The Lord hears Abram. And he answers his questions. Not necessarily in the way Abram was hoping for, Abram's, I don't want to know about 400 years of slavery. But he answers his questions. And then Abram responds. He believes the Lord. When God speaks, Abram says, yes, that is trustworthy. 
That is true. I believe that the Lord is dependable. It doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't have more questions. But as one scholar put it, complaint and faith are not antithetical. Complaint is based on taking God seriously. You don't complain about God not doing the things he said he would do unless you know and trust he will do what he said he will do. Sometimes my kids will say, but you said. And sometimes they they don't remember. But sometimes, as a parent, if I'm being honest, I'm frustrated that they did. That they did hear what I said, and they trusted what I said. And so they're coming with a complaint. God invites us to come to him with questions. Not to come at him, but to come to him. But also, in the midst of that, to trust who he is, what he has said, and what he has done. So God is faithful in our questions, but he's also faithful in his works. What he does in the midst of our questions, before our questions even come, long after our questions should have been answered. He is faithful in what he does. He tells Abram at first to look toward heaven and number the stars. This is it's interesting that, that God worked the stars long before Abram was even a part of his creation. And then he points to that work. Say, look at the stars. And this isn't just like a metaphor. Yeah, you're going to have a lot of kids. He's actually asking Abram, go out and count the stars. And this isn't just like, you know, you look up in the suburb and you're like, I can count the stars. There's three, you know, (laughs) a light pollution is covering everything over. I I hiked the Appalachian Trail once. And when you're out there and there's no one with a a headlamp on, you can see a lot of stars. This is a pre-industrial age. And so when Abram walks out his tent, as long as the torch isn't right next to him, the stars are going to be overwhelming. And God says, go and count them. That's how many offspring you're going to have. It's kind of like when Jesus says in Matthew 6 to consider the lilies or to consider the birds. He's not just saying, like, think about them. He's like, go out. Go look at a lily. How beautiful is that? Is God not more willing to clothe you than a flower? Look at the birds. Seriously, go out and do some bird watching. And see how they are taken care of. Are you not more precious than a bird? God is is inviting Abram to to really consider. And and Abram does. And he believes. And and God acts in response. It says that his, his his, his belief was counted to him as righteousness. This is This is unqualified. The word in Hebrew means like you count these things exactly the same. If if an ambassador went and he was counted as the king he was representing, it's like the king was present. So Abram's faith is counted to him as righteousness. This righteousness isn't just borrowed. It is fully and completely Abram's. And if you continue reading in the book of Genesis, in the very next chapter... Abram and Sarah are like, this child has taken a long time to get here. Why don't you just sleep with my servant? 
Abram's faith was not perfect. It was not persistent and consistent. It was frail. And yet still God counted that faith to him as righteousness. That's why Paul can say in Romans 4 that the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This promise is a reminder to us that when we trust in God and when we trust in his son who he sent to die on our behalf, our faith will be counted to us as righteousness, not because of anything we've done, because we, like Abram, are going to fail again, are still dealing with the sin dwelling within us, but because of the great work that God has done in his son. And God goes on. It says a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, which is just a sign that that the divine presence is here. It's supposed to inspire awe. And he says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out. And this is a very common convention in this day. When when someone was about to, to establish a covenant, they would sort of recount the shared history. Here's where we've been so far. Here's what brought us here. If a king conquered a nation and he's about to make them subservient, he'd say, I am the one who conquered you. And as a result, here is the covenant that we are going to have. So God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of your homeland. And it says the Lord made a covenant. The Hebrew here for make is actually to cut. And when you read this passage, you can sort of understand why. As as God had Abram take these animals and lay them out side by side, the two halves. And then Abram falls asleep. (laughs) But what does God do? It says these two symbols, this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch, which were kind of reminiscent of the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, that they are the things that walked through the animals. When you make a covenant, they would often do this. They would cut these animals in half, and the parties of the covenant would walk through. Both whoever was in charge and whoever was subservient would walk through. And the idea was, if either of us breaks the covenant, what happened to these animals? That should be what happens to us. But Abram falls asleep, and God, in a symbol of his presence, walks through the animals. And he takes the responsibility for keeping the covenant on himself. He takes the full responsibility for Abram's righteousness. This covenant ceremony was God's answer to Abram. Abram says, how will I know that this land is going to come to my people? And God says, let me tell you about the promise that I'm making to, the, to my people who shall come from your offspring. And he walks through the animals. And he takes on himself the responsibility. It's why, why in Philippians, Paul can say that Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so just as God walked through the animals, he sent his son as a child 
who, who did the righteousness. He didn't have righteousness counted to him like Abraham. He did the righteousness throughout his entire life. And then he didn't just walk through the animals. He was sacrificed like the animals on the cross. And he was buried because he died but he was raised to newness of life. And, and God is saying to Abram, trust in me, I'm taking responsibility. And God is saying to us, trust in me, my son has taken responsibility for all your righteousness and that I have made promises for your sake. That, that we have a God who, who's willing to humble himself to obligate his life to his people. And he invites us to know these promises, to trust in him, even when we have questions, and to look and hope to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you and your son humbled yourself, obligating Christ's own life for your people. I pray that we would not just gloss over the magnificence of that statement, that the sovereign Lord, Lord Yahweh, as Abram called you, obligated himself to his people. We thank you for that. We pray that we would trust in your words and your promises as you have given us in your word. I pray that we would be encouraged in the midst of difficulty, that we wouldn't be afraid to bring our questions to you, knowing that you are faithful and trustworthy. Do what we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You'd stand and join me in singing as we prepare for the Lord's table, God the Uncreated One.